One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rose irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market You're on Team Human, folding the fringes back to the center. A celebration of the deeply weird and improbable rise of human beings in the first place. And an investigation of whether we can keep this all going in the face of increasingly automated extraction, repression, surveillance, and control. It's time to design reality on our own terms. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, cultural hacker Hugh Gallagher. The lizard people myth, I took that and ran with it. I started seeing it as this ultimate wonderful metaphor for hypercapitalism. Calling in from Thailand today, Hugh will be sharing the motivation for his new online novel, Lifted, the ultimate lizard people rule the world conspiracy, and an outsider's approach to changing the diseased insides of our society. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. I've been experiencing something of a career pivot lately. It's interesting. I feel like I've spent the last 10 or 20 years really focused on, you know, hardcore media theory, economic theory, and articulating why it's really okay for us to move away from traditional corporate venture capitalism and towards a more real-time distributed form of of economics, a a peer-to-peer marketplace, and why that will actually work. In other words, why it's not just some crazy hippie commune dream, but why shifting economic gears and moving towards a system where we promote the velocity of currency rather than the accumulation of capital, we end up with a better economy, not a weaker economy, one that's better for everyone involved, even the wealthy, even the corporations, because they're sitting on so much fat, they're sitting on so much cash, it actually hurts them. If they were leaner, they'd be happier. But I've gotten to a place now where I see my best ideas are now all over the place. I mean, it's sometimes credited, sometimes not. I'm not bummed out about where I'm not getting credit. But when I see, oh, look at that paragraph from, from this book is now in the New York Times or is now in this other person's book or is now being talked about even at some TED conference or someplace where I wouldn't go. It's like, wow, I guess I've, I've done that job. The, the best of the most rigorous ideas I've had have been accepted, right? They're in there. They're trickling down now. They're moving through society. The experts get it and the movements get it. People are out there between platform cooperativism and Lumio and all the many bottom-up democracy movements and media movements and education movements. I feel like the the rigorous work... Um, at least my rigorous work, has gotten traction. But when I look at what's next, what really needs to happen, 
is I feel like the culture at large now needs to become more receptive to these kinds of ideas. That as a culture, we're still so afraid, we're still so addicted to our own, our individual or our family's short-term survival and health. We're still looking at the future in these outrageously negative, fear-based ways. It's still easier for most people to imagine how to survive the zombie apocalypse than how to survive the actual next five or ten years. And people still feel so divorced from the processes through which they can make change. They still see uh, democracy, economics, technology, spirituality as non-participatory affairs, as venues, as areas of our social development that are not open to re-engineering, that are not open for discussion, that now I'm thinking that the most important work that I can do with whatever remaining time I have on this on this little globe um, is cultural. I'm getting attracted to uh, to theater, to fiction, to comics, to TV, uh, to places where we can uh, kind of break apart the cultural narrative that we've been using, the cultural narratives that are so obsolete in an era where rapid and uh, really heartfelt cultural change are called for, that what I want to start doing, um, particularly as soon as I'm done with this next, just one more book, um, this next book is I want to start getting involved again in theater, in listening, in fiction, in cultural narrative. And I know that's a big expression, but in the way that we are putting together ideas, the way that we're understanding the world, the way that we're understanding the role of the individual and the negotiation of our individual freedom with our our collective coordination and with orchestrating this this consensual hallucination that we're calling reality, um, I feel like it's time to get in there, to get into consciousness, to get into perception, to get into the way that we're regarding reality around us in order to really help instill uh, myself and others with the will and the confidence and the kind of the daring, fun-loving, uh, mischievous, open-mindedness that we really need to approach this next potentially challenging moment in uh, human civilization. And one person who's really, you know, inspired me along those lines is uh, our guest today, the cultural hacker, uh, Hugh Gallagher. I don't have the time. The time has me. So let's get funky to my Casio beat. I'm from the 80s, where are the ladies? I want to party tonight. So Hugh, I mean, I've known you a long time. I, I guess I probably heard about you before I met you when you did your uh, uh, famous, uh, I guess that was a Harvard essay uh, for your Harvard application, and, and it ended up being forwarded and all over the place. And the thing that was so neat about it to me is it, it really d- did uh, indicate something of where you would go in that it was at, at once... You know, at once an effort to you know get into school or do whatever it was you're supposed to do, but it was also a a it was kind of a takedown of the whole college application system. In other words, if you want oh you want some over the top person, this is what you want. Here you go, mofo. You know, totally. And 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 I felt like and and they had to reward that. What could they do at that point? 
Yeah, I was lucky. I, NYU uh, loved my writing, loved my work. I got in there. I sent it everywhere. And uh, yeah, it led to a lot of great stuff. And people have told me too, it's like they, some people say it's the first internet meme, the first comedy internet meme, um, because that's where it got a second pair of legs. Right. It's where it spread around. And it was both you and someone else. I mean, it was you playing a character of you. <laughs> which is yeah. which was kind of fun. I mean, and, and I mean, one of the next you know highlights in your career, obviously, was was Von Von Von. Yeah. I don't make much money. I'm too busy making love. Making love is what I do. I don't make new friends. I'm too busy making love. I might make love with you. You see me, but I mean, can you explain the sort of the genesis of Von 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 and what and what he was what he was trying to bring to our culture? Simply put, Von 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 was just trying to bring the love. So that's the simple <laughs> answer. Uh, how it happened was just interesting. I always like uh, I was hanging around a lot of art galleries, and I was living across the street from the projects on. 10th Avenue in New York. It was this weird mashup of street culture and Euro trash. And I always thought these European people were so cool, like at the art galleries, flying out to the Biennale and whatnot. And I was like, man, I really would love to be like that. So I just started to joke around and pretend like that. And then it just sort of grew. I got shows and art galleries and Gavin Brown's famous bar at the time, Passerby. And then I got on the Apollo and then it just, it just took off and I was recording and I was doing the whole thing. And it was just fun. It was, um, it was something that I'd started after writing in television as well. And television is a super strict hierarchy where you have to work as a writer for a really long time, put in your hours. And maybe after very many long years, this was the old industry, you can possibly do your own show. But what happened is Vaughn started at the same time that MySpace started and the same time that YouTube started. And I was like, I could use these platforms to kind of bypass the create a show thing and just like actually start making it online, which was really fun. And that's that was sort of the, the mixture of how that project got going. And then, right, and then obviously it took off. I mean, and, and if you look at the uh, that Apollo video, I mean, it was worth doing just for that five yeah, minutes. That was amazing. <laughs> yeah, that was like, it was like walking on the moon. That was like one of the best things oh, I yeah. ever did. It was just fantastic. Y'all give it up for Vaughn, Vaughn, Vaughn. Y'all give it up for Vaughn, Vaughn, Vaughn. Hey, I'm all right tonight, Harlem. How you doing? Now, where you from, man? Now, I'm from Antwerp. For the people out there who ain't got no map, where's that at? Uh, man, it doesn't really matter, because this is where it's at. You know? We wear silk and give each other all. And then, I mean, you did a bunch of projects. You had the, the, the teeth, uh, you did the teeth novel. I guess that was before that. Yes. I did Teeth in the 90s. I did the Teeth novel. I did uh, a couple Daft Punk videos. I was a scriptwriter for two of their huge videos, Defunk, that Spike Jones directed, and uh-huh. the sequel to that. I was in the Gen X Reader. I don't know if you know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's like... Famed uh, collection. I that was for your... Uh, you did what? Seven, seven Days and Nights Alone with MTV for uh, right. Rolling Stone, I guess that was, or right. Details yeah. or somebody. Yeah, for Rolling Stone. That's where we met. I remember, yeah, I was like... I remember having this conversation with you about Gen X and what you were doing and it was so new at the time and it was like, yeah, you're sharing a sort of view that a lot of writers have and a lot of us have and I'd love to have it in this book. And that was cool. That was like realizing that you're part of a generational voice was really exciting. And right. so, and we were saying that the Generation X was not these sort of loser dropouts as they were yes. being cast by mainstream media. Exactly. You know, just because we had resistance to marketing didn't mean we were losers. It meant we were we were winners who could see things. Just like your college essay was was you know a true Gen X statement of this is bullshit. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> and I'm going to be funny about it, and uh, uh, hopefully you know lead to something better. Yes, there's a lot of people that were, I think, deconstructing but still playing with the mediums. Like they hadn't completely revolutionized them or walked away from them. I think that was what was happening at the time. Yeah, it was an interesting moment. It was like it was somewhere between William Burroughs' cut and paste of establishment media, but before the true, you know, internet and DIY your own 
uh, your own media output. Yes. It was, uh, I guess it was necessarily this kind of, I mean, we didn't look at ourselves as postmodernists or anything, but it was definitely <laughs> deconstructing, you know, and then, yes. and, and I suppose releasing some energy as you do that. Yeah. I remember how exciting it was, as you say, like you, you don't really know you're deconstructing. You're just like throwing around these jokes and then you meet somebody who gets all the jokes or knows the next line. And you're like, whoa, wait a second. I never met you, but we share this language. And that was so exciting because everything was done live and in real time. You met people at art galleries or you met people who saw your writing and then you realize that you shared this bond. And that was really cool. Right. And it didn't involve some kind of a, a Tinder match percentage no, <laughs> quotient. No. no, it was it was it was out there finding and meeting and it was a really special moment. A minute maybe and we were in that weird minute between the boomer fading out and the digital avalanche. So it was a good place to be. So the nineties I was really creatively active with books. I did a spoken word record called Hugh Brown Shoe. Did those videos, um, did a bunch of articles for Rolling Stone for Wired, your favorite magazine. Yeah. Um, and then after that, after my first book at the end of the nineties, I just, I kind of slipped into business mode because it was just a matter of making money. So I started working in branding at the Arnell group and was in advertising and have been kind of playing a game since then of working in advertising and branding and then writing books. Wow. So what is it like to do branding? Uh, it's pretty interesting. You know, I've, uh, I've got to ask you questions too about that because I know that I think, a lot of the guys from I'm listening to some of your talks and you meet a lot of very high players in that world. It sounds like um, people who are kind of sculpting that reality. And I'm kind of mm -hmm. in the trenches and I meet the designers and the writers and the project managers. And they're really it's a it's an interesting world because there's a lot of really talented people that are really focused on getting things done. And business can be kind of a high. It's like you have this project, everybody comes together, gets it done, everything clicks into place. And it's really cool. That's the great side of it. Um, the challenging side of yeah. it is you have to ask like, what are you doing for the planet really? How are you moving things along by making people want to buy stuff? Yeah. I mean, I do know when I was in my, in my twenties, there was this group of kind of, I guess we were creatives who would, they would, call us in to an ad agency they would they would say okay we've got to pitch this giant corporation in five days you know a whole advertising campaign <laughs> and so they would hire five or six 20 something freelancers to sit in a conference room for a week or three days or and come up with the whole thing for them and sure. even pitch the thing and it's like wait a minute i thought you were in advertising where's your creatives where's the thing yeah. but the 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 thing you're right about was that you know even though it was sort of like oh i'm gonna go work for evil there was this sense of a of camaraderie and campaign mm -hmm. totally and you're working there all night eating pizza and coming up with <laughs> yeah. weird stuff it was sort of the same yeah. feeling as when you know when you'd come up with a rave flyer or a map point it's just this little project and you make it look cool and uh, but yeah, but the problem is it's, uh, uh, no matter how much sort of Gen X wink, wink, I'm going to make the world aware consciousness meta narrative you put in there, you're still primarily just contributing to the, the, you know, the extraction of value from real people and the destruction of the planet and mind numbingness and all that. It's true. It's, it's just hyper materialism, hyper capitalism, um, my antidote to all of that has always been writing, like writing, just having a side project. Uh, I, right. the business, like there's a lot of really smart people there. And the interesting part of it you can get into is the sort of strategy and getting into, you know, the whole idea of nudging and framing and all these weird abstract kind of concepts that go into branding are pretty wild. They're pretty out there. It's like high level semiotics in real time. Um, and working with designers and how they, you know, they'll argue over a drop shadow, whether a drop shadow makes something more friendly or whether it's off putting and they'll, they'll, you know, they'll duke it out over this stuff. And that's trippy stuff. That's really trippy. And then you learn also the good thing about business is you learn to write really fast. You have to really write fast. You have to learn to kill ideas that don't work really mercilessly and move on to what works. And that's interesting. So I learned and continue to learn. I mean, I work right now, I work with uh, Adidas in Germany and do a bunch of stuff for them. So I continue to work while I write books and 
it's it's a learning process always. I mean, the trick with the the advertising thing. I mean, the reason why I, I was unable to you know do it more than a couple of times was you know when you talk to the heads of these advertising agencies or the the people running branding agencies, they're convinced that the work that they're putting out is so damaging that they don't let their kids watch TV. You know, <laughs> they don't well. let their kids see the work that they've done, <laughs> and. When you realize that, it's like, well, wait a minute. What do you think? What do you think's happening? What are you doing? If you're not going to let your own kids watch the stuff that you're putting out, but you're nonetheless you're creating a world in which people are being raised in a way that you wouldn't want that, and your kids growing up in that world, mm-hmm. and they're like, well, yeah, but uh, but I'm earning enough money that my kid won't have to interact with those people. Boy. <laughs> so. Wow. It's like, so wait a minute, what's going on? So you're trying to earn enough money so you can insulate yourself and your family from the world that you're creating by earning that money. Is that what you're saying? It's like, well, yeah, basically, that's what I'm saying. Because if I don't do it, someone else is doing it anyway. Yes. Uh, and that I, seems self-destructive. That seems to be what everybody in capitalism says, though. Like, I'm going to cash out and leave all this. That's why I'm working so hard on whatever it is I'm doing. That seems to be what everyone I meet in the industry, in any industry, is like, I thought you were going to say the other thing is the worst people are in there are the people in branding who are like, they like, I'm Da Vinci, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm creating this insane art of design and, and, and fluid experiences that, that evoke meaning and, and all this shit. And every time I listen to somebody say that, I like some of them really feel that way. They really do feel that this is a forefront of communication and they're actually creating this amazing thing. And I don't know. I'm always like, dude, we're selling sneakers. <laughs> yeah, we're selling sneakers. They, kinda, they, they uh, have the uh, they sort of have the Warhol equation in reverse. It's yeah. like Warhol turned marketing stuff into art. They're trying to turn art stuff into marketing. <laughs> it sort of doesn't yeah. work quite the same way. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So then, what's a, what's a nice kid like you end up moving out to Thailand for? Uh, let's see. This goes back to advertising again. In 2008, during the economic meltdown, I had been relocated to Portland, Oregon. Uh, from New York City. And I spent a few years in Portland, which were great. But then the economy crashed and the company I was at laid off about half of their people or three quarters of their people. It really hit them hard. I was one of them that got put out the door. And so at that point, I had always had a life goal of living outside of the U.S. for at least a year as a writer and as an artist and, you know, bon vivant, whatever you want to call it. And yeah. it just seemed like the right time. So I did some research on emerging markets and the two emerging markets right now that are the biggest are in Southeast Asia or the Middle East. And I didn't want to go to the Middle East. I've been there before, though, and had a wonderful trip, but I didn't really want to set up a life there. Europe was totally dead economically. And so I kind of zoned in on Southeast Asia and I'd been to Indonesia before. I thought it was cool. And I located entry points in either Singapore or Bangkok is probably going to be the best Bangkok just seemed like more fun, and it was. I landed here, and I loved it. So I've been living in Bangkok. I lived for about three and a half years, and then I had business again in Taipei and business in the States. And I've been out here again for about two years, a little less than that, and traveling. So I spent a lot of time in Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, and it's a very fascinating part of the world. It's interesting. When I hear that you go out there, I feel like, well, shoot, if you go out to Thailand or some emerging marketplace, you know, developing nation, and you don't need to make as much money to stay alive. Yes. So can't you just be the artist crazy Hugh Gallagher guy out there? Or do you still have to do some, you know, advertising sort of destructive drudgery in order to make it all hang together? I don't have to do as much. I can be more artist crazy Hugh Gallagher guy, which is my primary objective. And yeah, the, one of the other reasons I moved out here is just low overhead. You can be, you as a writer out here, you know, you can get by with very little and I don't really need much. I'm not a really materialistic guy. I don't have a family. So it's a really good place to buy time. You know, you can buy time and write a book if you want and uh, buy time to chill out in between books. And that's really cool. Right. Rather than, I mean, people in New York who are trying to, you know, do that balance, if they're not making a ton of money on their writing, you know, they're working full time, yeah. you know, for the man in yeah. in ways they really don't want to. And the more you do it, it does turn you. I mean, you've got to justify, you've got to rationalize what you're doing on some level. Mm-hmm. And if you're rationalizing for, you know, 90% of the day, 
then you come home and what are you really going to write? What are you really going to think? You know, you're going to start writing apologies for, uh, for this culture rather than, than mm-hmm. send ups or takedowns. Yeah. It's, uh, I found the balance in America. It's like, even outside of New York, even when I was in Portland, the, the overhead you had to do, which is a, much less than New York. It's still, it's a, it gets more, dif- more and more difficult to balance. And, uh, that was one of the attractions of leaving the States and finding a lower overhead. Yeah, I mean, more and more difficult to balance, yet more and more imperative to really set the balances far over towards the arts activism consciousness side as possible. Because, I mean, it feels as if the world is in much more of a of a crisis than it was, you know, when we were coming up. Oh, it's, yeah. uh, there's something critical going on. There is. Um, watching it from this side of the planet is really interesting. The history in Southeast Asia, especially, like I was just in Laos, which which was bombed, bombed more than any place on the planet during the 60s and 70s. This part of the planet was in flames 40 years ago. It's not like that. It's definitely better out here than it was before. And if you look west, it's like things are going crazy over there. And it's a very, you know, it's a it's an interesting balancing to see both cultures. Like one seems to be ascendant. One seems to be kind of in convulsions. And um, it's it's a really interesting time in the world and it's interesting to see it from different points in the world well it's interesting i mean we usually we think of asia in terms of just the nation states like oh china rising or right but i guess when you're actually there it doesn't you're not really seeing national boundaries it doesn't look like a political map it looks like this real place with like ground and trees and sky and people right (laughs) well what trees are left i mean we it's insane when you see the U.S. footprint out here. Like we really, we destroyed really? something like 70% of the trees in Cambodia in our bombing. Mm. Um, oh, we were napalming, yeah. Yeah, and it's really wild uh, seeing this part of the world up close after it was so drenched in your memory from like growing up and, you know, watching Vietnam footage and, and all of that. So, yeah. But now it feels ascendant, though, in that it so it, it feels it, like this is an economy that's an imp- that's improving and people are finding meaning and work and yes. sustenance. Yeah, totally. It's it's like they have a middle class that's growing. They, the digital economy is doing a lot of things out here and changing life in a remarkable way that wasn't happening 20, 30 years ago. And uh, it's really positive in a lot of ways. And then you get these weird things like you're out in some backcountry road and you see somebody with a dirt floor in a tin shack, like squatting over their cell phone. <laughs> you know, it's like right. this, you get this ancient image of of, of uh, peasantry and poverty, but they're digitally wired. And that's a really weird, trippy thing. Does the society seem to be growing along kind of uh, capitalist lines or does it seem different? Does it seem more evolved in some way? Uh, the Buddhist element and the collective element are interesting because, you know, there's that cliche about the West where you, everybody wants to go out and be themselves. And in the East, everybody's trying to break into society and be part of that. This is a really intricate culture of hierarchy and knowing where you are in the hierarchy and fitting into it. So collectivism is the defining uh, mantra here as opposed to individualism in the West. So people are super, I mean, it's the hive mind in Bangkok. It's crazy. The phones and everybody's, it's super, super social. Most of them skipped. I mean, laptop computers weren't bought here. This part of the world didn't have money then. So everybody's going online strictly through mobile and it's highly saturated. And the, in Thailand, they call them the heads, the heads down generation. That's what the, I don't know how to say it in Thai, but that's what they call this generation because everybody's just facing their phones and it's, it's, I don't like it, but it's, it's what it is. You know, it's where we're at. So then what you're writing about now, I mean, so you, you are writing a book, but it's on a different kind of platform, right? It's on. It's actually on a phone. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm writing a. <laughs> Okay, so meeting this need in China, there is a microfiction boom where people are doing essentially what Charles Dickens did, but they're doing it on phones. And these guys are rock stars in Korea and China. And a company called Radish Fiction is opening up that platform in the U.S. So they're doing micro installment fiction. And it's about 3,000 word delivery once or twice a week. You pay for some of it as you go. You get a free sample and then you start paying if you like the story. So I've just released a story on that. Um, dealing with a lot of hypercapitalism and a lot of branding thoughts and my conflicts about that industry, and it is called Lifted. That is my latest book. 
Right. So they go to Radish Fiction and they find Lifted by Hugh Gallagher right on there. Yes. Or they can go to HughGallagher.net and click through it that way. And that's an easy way, too. And then it's text, right? Yes. Yeah, it's a very fast pace. Uh, It's written for the medium. So it's like cliffhangers, fast pace, thriller story. And I do believe it's our first book about... um, the lizard people. I think so. <laughs> the lizard people myth. I took that and ran with it. I, I thought it was this. I mean, you remember in the 90s, people were talking about UFOs all the time and lizard people would pop up. Right. And I started seeing it as this ultimate, wonderful metaphor for hypercapitalism. You know, we always I've heard you and your speeches talk about the lizard brain and about fight or flight and right. how these technologies manipulate us into that mode. I saw a lot in hypercapitalism of, of just kind of sociopathic uh, narcissistic, um, weirdness that's moving real fast. And so I was like, wait a sec, what if lizard people really do run the world? What if that is the plot here? And instead of speaking about it, you know, like David Icke does saying, oh yes, they're running us. And you know, I know I'm not on that road, but as a story structure, it was incredibly awesome and liberating and fun. And I had a blast writing lifted. I mean, on the one hand, you know, the lizard brain, the reptile brain of the person is, you know, is that, is the really base one. It's the one that, you know, you don't have your, your logical capabilities and you don't have your, your empathy or your, your whole neocortex is just gone. The lizard's just like fight or flight, you right. know, food or food or, you know, prey or predator. <laughs> what? And, and it's so basic, but that when we think about, you know, aliens coming or the the drivers of corporate capitalism, they always get framed as like more advanced than us mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, aliens who are, are from, you know, a, a, a future culture of some kind. Yet what the myth is telling us is that, no, this sort of hyper capitalism dominator is not your future. It's your past. It's this weird <laughs> core thing that you're evolving hopefully evolving beyond, but it doesn't seem like, uh, it doesn't seem like we're able to do that. Yeah. The essentially, the essential lizard heart of humanity, uh, <laughs> is somehow being amplified through hypercapitalism. And that's the, that's, there's actually a lot of sophisticated intellectuals that are talking about in a time of rapid change, it's, it, it is a, a breeding ground for sociopaths, narcissists, because Everything is moving so quickly that nobody could pin anything down or anyone down and and establish a, hey, this is how we do things. So people who are able to shape shift through all these different emerging technologies can kind of stay a few steps ahead of everybody and be really lizard about playing the game. And in lizard, we mean uh, totally cold-blooded, lying, amoral, ace, a, a, not immoral, but amoral, just an absence of any kind of moral compass um, and just rapacious in in wanting resources. And you think that they've, uh, do they have an agenda as well? Or are they going on automatic? I think it's automatic. I think it's just like you, it's just like this drive for more and more. And the the hyper accelerated culture that we have and these new technological tools are incredibly powerful. And if you're into mining things like you know you're saying about we're, we've mined everything now we've got to mine people's attention and their mind and their soul and their spirit like they have the tools to do that now and i think they're just going for it in the same way that you would just go for like whoa there's gold in them hills <laughs> you know it's a human tendency right um so i think once i started to think of it as a story lifted in the lizard people it became a really awesome story i was like well what yeah what if we instead of these books about dystopian futures what about a dystopian present? Uh, what about something that's about this whole game is rigged? And it tied in with a lot of spiritual texts as well about, um, you know, through a glass darkly and this fallen world that Christianity speaks of and Buddha's talking mm-hmm. about, you know, you live in a veil of illusion and suffering. And, um, you know, the those kind of texts, the Hindus are not into, you know, the, you have to bear with this world that is full of suffering and death. Uh, the Old Testament has so much of, of slavery and wandering. It's, you know, it's not really ever been presented as a great place, this world, in the classical religions. It's always a, a challenging road. 
And I think getting back to that through the lizard people myth of like, yeah, devils, reptiles, monsters, a horrible part of us runs this world. What are you going to do with that information? Like in this imperfect world, what are you going to do with that? How are you going to stay alive and find inspiration there? And that's where that's what my characters fight for in the book. And I thought it was a really great experience writing it. Yeah, it's even even if you can't go all the way, at least maintaining, you know, some balance. You know, I was thinking of of the Old Testament as I was looking at your stuff too. The uh, you know the great story of uh, uh, when Pharaoh is not letting uh, not letting the Jews go, yeah. and uh, God says uh, to Moses, "I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart." In other words, on the one hand, I'm going to make Pharaoh a, a a better opponent for me, but the idea is that by being so selfish, so extractive, that uh, Pharaoh becomes reptile. You know mm-hmm. that he doesn't have heart anymore. He he locks himself in, you know, and that's where I feel like we humans can still win this game because the the reptile people or the hyper capitalists, whatever we want to call them, we know how they're gonna act because yes. they've only got one choice. You know, yes. so they they seem ultimately way more predictable than any of us in our consumer profiles might indicate. Right. I agree with you. Uh once they're the hardening heart is like it. It's it's a predictable thing, and it's not that sort of, you know, your show and your your platform here is talking about the kind of, um, like I say, a sophistication of choices and a sophistication of responses that are human that cannot be elucidated just in a binary, you know, yes or no, one or zero. It's like a humanity is that vagueness. You know, you've had guests on your show talking about not really knowing and being okay with not knowing. And that's really, that's humanity. And that's a really thing that I think is being stripped from us and always having to be on or having to know or get that information or be classified. Um, And the the tricky part is uh, when you don't meet people's particular expectations. So they might, you know, sometimes I'll get a, uh, uh, an email. Oh, you know, you weren't, you weren't angry enough at Trump on this. I can't listen to your show anymore. Or you were too angry at Trump on this. I can't listen to your show anymore. Or, oh, you had, you know, Hugh Gallagher already sounds like a nice guy, but he works for the advertising industry. Can't have him. I can't listen to your show anymore. You know, this, and that's as automatic and lizard yeah. as, uh, as anything. Yeah. You know, it's like, no, you if we're the humans, then we are the ones who are surprising, who draw our lines in different places, who are, who are you know constantly going against expectation, and that yes. has to be seen as a good thing, not a bad thing. I totally agree with you, and I think that that's that's where humanity. I think you know to make a very large statement is that's where we're making our left turn and our bad turn. Is this oh you know Douglas feels this about this particular subject, so I'm writing him off completely. That's really really juvenile and. You know, if you think about the founding fathers, all of these guys in the room, do you think all of them liked each other? Do you think all of them like liked every part of the way they're running their business and their life? No. You, you, no, you guys, I saw Hamilton. They shot each other. Yeah. It's like you pick and choose. <laughs> it's like, look, I'll deal with this guy because he has this going on, but I'll I'll bear with this that he has going on that I, you don't have right. to agree 100 percent. It's that's really bad. Uh, and that's where that's where the the insanity I'm seeing is happening. Why, why does everything have to be a hundred percent one way, my way, this way? And I guess that's the divisiveness of the social media tunnels that are being created. Right. And that somehow, I guess we feel once we get down to what is that 1% difference that I have with this other person? Well, and now do I have to kill them? <laughs> it's like, yeah. Permanently you know, unfriended. Like, which, Exactly, because you like a different Power Ranger than I do, you know. Or, you know, it's like someone comes back because they realize they were wrong. Oh, I was wrong. It turns out your permaculture strategy actually would work. Therefore, I can be friends with you again. It's like you shouldn't have not been friends with me before based on your disagreement on my permaculture strategy. Yes, what happened to disagreeing? Yeah, the, the one culture we haven't talked about yet, although I guess it's related to the reptiles, is the UFO culture. <laughs> Which is, uh, you know, shown up in a bunch of your work. Certainly in this in this latest uh, this latest piece. Were you at uh, the LA UFO convention yeah. and came up with this? Yeah, I, the what Lifted is based on is 
in early 90s, I went. I was as a journalist, I was writing, and I went to a UFO convention in Los Angeles. And there was all these people. I went in laughing. And I, I by mid-afternoon, I was convinced that there were CIA agents all over the place and grays shape-shifting the corner. It's really weird. You get in a vibe where everybody's really paranoid and telling these different stories. And they were sharing these self-published books and talking about aliens. And there was this one guy during a presentation when everyone was asking a woman questions and he said, he asked the question, he's like, I was wondering if during your experience you ever had any uh, run in with a reptilian race that lives under the earth and runs humanity as a video game system. And he got like really shut down. No one would talk to him. And I went and talked to him and the alien people were having nothing to do with the reptilian guy. I found him fascinating. And so I started talking to him and he told me about the reptilian agenda and it planted a seed in my head about wow, this is a crazy idea. And there was a crazy bookstore in LA. I think it's still there called the Bodhi tree where they had all this conspiracy and new age yeah. stuff. And it was before the internet. So you had, you had to go to these bookstores and find this stuff. And I started finding these books on reptilians and that was trippy. And I just remembered it. And then, um, I met some Satanists out there that were talking about reptilians. And then David, Icke came and started building this whole reptilian world theory. And, I got really into the myth and the idea also of in our world of gray where everything's relative and everything can be explained away. And it's this complex world where there's no good and bad and there's everything's, you know, moral ambiguity. It's like, look, dude, if lizards are running the world, that's just evil and let's kill them. <laughs> you know, it's like they're, <laughs> they're the bad guys. Let's get them. And that was the fun part of the book, too, because it's very hard to write about any society now if you have any intelligence and not be at least some provisionist, morally ambiguous, but not with lizard people. Just get the lizards, kill them dead. <laughs> yeah, it does simplify yeah. things, you know? Yeah. But uh, people like to demonize. And emotionally, that's, I mean, everything's so emotional, it's irrational and emotionally driven. Every part of politics and culture, that's crazy. How, how can you run anything that way? Right. I mean, and that, but that's where you have to worry. So is it, does living in an environment of branding and advertising damage people to the point where they, they can't conduct appropriate cognition as citizens? Or uh, is it just that, that uh, when, we, when we use these uh, techniques to sell candidates the way yes. we do toothpaste – that they respond I like think that. you're getting into McLuhan's territory where he talked about the neo savage, the all at onceness that media creates where everything's on, everything's now and the causative chain of anything is eliminated. And, um, yeah, a TV commercial comes on for president, then for a candy bar. And since they're on the same wavelength, they're kind of a product and everybody is sort of this flurry of information that's things happen and they're totally, disconnected from the root causes or the root causes are so complex that you just have this stuff happening and you don't understand why it's happening. And the interesting part, this ties into the very first colonialism. Um, the history of, of imperialism is the history of literate society dominating illiterate society because illiterates could never build causative chains and say, Oh, this is how you do this and then do this and you make gunpowder and then you put it in a gun and then you shoot somebody. You know, it was just like this fire stick and somebody's dead. They didn't know the logical chains and we're losing all the logical chains. I think it's just in the flow of information, whether that's branding, television or entertainment, just the flurry of stuff that's going on. It's really taking people's ability to build those chains of cause and effect. Right. I mean, which is interesting that you would look at the I Ching because the I Ching is sort of a way of bridging uh, the sort of nowness consciousness with the more cause and effect consciousness. You know, what I, you know what I mean? It sort of has both both in it. It's a gateway from sure. one to the other. It's an attempt to, to go into the sub-rational or the pre-rational, subconscious, whatever you want to call it, and put images on there that sort of evoke some sort of feeling, but it's also organized. It's a fascinating book. It's, it's been around, what, 5,000 years? It's the oldest book on the planet continually in use on our planet aside from the bible and yeah that's really deep once you get into the the yo ching i i i just like it because it's it's so accessible it's you know it's so i don't want to curse on your show but there's just it's filled with curse words it's a flurry of them 
you can download the app for free, check it out or check out the book, but it opens up this knowledge of, Hey, we're, we're just in a part of a cycle. Civilization runs on hundred year, thousand year cycles. Stars have cycles. Um, there's incredible length to this universe and we're in a very small moment in it. And the Yo Ching really helps you widen your frame and realize, all right, you know, especially in the feudal societies where the book, the material originated, you know, you had an empire, you had the laws of empire and the, the emperor did what he wanted and you had to deal with it. You got a good one. Sometimes you got a bad one sometimes. And you understood you got to talk more sometimes and you didn't get to talk more sometimes. And it's really rational about how to handle good and bad times instead of this hyper-capitalism, always go, always now, always yes, always positive. Life's not like that. Right. Well, the the Western capitalist, even biblical narrative line is a, is a linear. It's a through line. It goes from here to there, you know, as opposed to the I Ching's understanding of time, which is way mm-hmm. more circular. It's just, it's just change. Yeah, there's no particular yeah, direction. That's interesting. More cyclical and less linear. I guess my question, I mean, and kind of the closing question though, is do you see then what we're going through now from, from, uh, you know, capitalism to climate change as a moment or as the moment? You know, in a in a Western apocalyptic mode, it feels like, oh, maybe this is the end of the story. Uh, from your sensibility, and particularly where you're living, does no, it feel like that? I think that, it's really. Does I it think feel... I would recommend everybody to widen the frame a little bit and read a lot of history. This part of the world is so ancient, and empires. You know, you go to uh, Angkor Wat and see the Khmer Empire, which is totally gone, but had this incredibly ascendant era. Um, you look at the Roman Empire, which was huge and then went away. These empires, they rise and fall. And I think that there's a moment that's happening now that's probably the first global empire. And um, I don't know. I mean, the British did it. The Romans did it. This part of the world and the Yo Ching, it puts this stuff in perspective. It's easier not it's easier not to get wrapped up in it and just realize that these things are are kind of flowing and these things will reach a crisis point. That's what thing, you know, they say in Buddhism, things come together, they take shape, and they fall apart. Right now, something's coming together and it's taking shape. And then it will fall apart. The shape it's taking right now is pretty dominant. And your job, I think, is to sort of deal with the times that you're handed. And there's people like you. There's people, there's a lot of people out there that are realizing that and just sort of backing away, I think, and looking at a little more objectively and not getting caught up in all the Twitter blasts and just sort of being like, wait a sec, you know, humanity has all this, all this history. And there's been so many different empires, you know, read about the Spanish inquisition. You know, if you get bummed out, that was an insane time, dude, they were digging up people's bones and putting bones on trial. Imagine looking out your window and seeing that and being, you know, like a merchant <laughs> and just being like, Oh my God, this law system that's supposed to protect me is literally putting someone's bones on trial. We're not dealing with that. That's just great. So <laughs> there's these <laughs> idiocy happens, mass idiocy. It's 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 weird. It happens. Um, you know, the trick is staying smart and keeping a sense right. of humor about it as it goes on and being human. What I admire about your work is you're standing right up into it and talking about these guys, which I love because nobody really does that. Nobody says, "Hey Google," or nobody says, "Hey Coca Cola," and that's really cool. Uh, so. I think it's, you know, you can either pull, like I've basically pulled out to the fringes and I'm like, I, I survive by writing creative works and just diving into that. That's how I'm dealing with it. And you're saying, wait a second, you're bringing all these people together and you're meeting these people. And I think that's fantastic too. Oh, well, that's sweet. I mean, it's good. It's good. It's, it feels safer to find the others and, yeah. you know, be part of a team, be part of a team. <laughs> totally. Totally. And, uh, I, I, it's wonderful. I think there's a lot of hope, but I think there's just, there's, there's a lot of good people out there and there's a lot of loud people out there. <laughs> and right now the loud people are kind of winning. Well, thank you, Hugh Gallagher, for, for talking with us, for being on Team Human and for, for the writing that you do. Thank you, Douglas. HughGallagher.net is the site. Lifted is the Lizard People book and the Yo Ching is there as well, as well as 90s yeah. novel Teeth, which... And actually, there's a link to the Gen X Reader, so you can find one of Douglas's first books there, too. 
You've been listening to Team Human, our guest today, cultural hacker and author of the new online novel, Lifted, Hugh Gallagher. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peace. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 